Welcome back to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast, the motivational poster in your ear. I'm your host, Tim Alanius, VP of Strategic Initiatives at AmericanEagle.com. This episode is part two of a two-parter podcast. And in case you missed part one, I really recommend you go back and listen to that first. Otherwise, you're jumping into the middle of a conversation that probably still will make sense. Now, back to our lesson with Dries, the founder of Drupal and CTO of Acquia. I know, Jason, you've been very quiet, and I know you've got a good list of questions as well that you would love to you know, ask Dries. So I'm going to turn it over to you here, and maybe we'll get a, a technical hat on here for a little while yeah. and, and dig a little sure. deeper. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, and if I may step back for a second, I, I should have properly introduced myself earlier. As you asked, uh, Tim, um, my role with AmericanEagle.com is as Drupal Technical Director. Of course, you know, I'm a big fan of Drupal. So I'd love to talk about that. But if I may, since we were talking about digital experience platforms, I did have a, a question about that. Actually, before this this talk today, I asked a lot of Drupal people, you know, DrupalCon and, and elsewhere, you know, like if you had the chance to talk to Dries, what would you ask him? Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, so I took some of these questions and compiled them. So, you know, for, for what I hear a lot of people asking is, what is a DXP? You know, I know you just went through and explained that, and I'm a fan. So, uh, you know, just to be clear, but as if I may, like, you know, bring up what some of the critics are saying, uh, as you've probably heard, of course, a real story group, for example, on the CMS Wire website that they have, uh, they said in April 2022, quote, we believe the phrase was originated by failing portal platform vendors looking for a fresher label and then adopted by web content management vendors looking to acquire their way to growth, end quote. Their argument essentially is most customers don't actually know what a DXP is. And the reality is that not it's not a single offering, but a variety of tooling cobbled together. And customers want a best of breed tools from multiple vendors. So I guess what people are wondering is this sort of marketing fluff. And, you know, also <laughs> on that if I may tack on another question, I think you recently said yourself that you thought digital experience is kind of vague mm-hmm. and you preferred site builders. Ambitious site builders is the, the target audience for Drupal, I know. But I think you said recently that it humanizes who your target audience is. Digital experience could apply to almost anything these days, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's television streaming content or something like that, it could be far more than web or mobile. You know, is it is it uh, clear what digital experience platforms are, you know, to the majority of people out there? Do you think that is a thing, uh, according to Real Story Group, that they don't think it is? So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what yeah. you're taking. I mean, it is, it is a marketing term to describe a collection of different tools. The tools in one DXP aren't necessarily the same tools as in another DXP. I would say they're probably 80% the same. So I think there's a rough... There's a directional definition of what a DXP is. And if you talk to the analysts like Gartner and Forrester, they have their own definitions as well. So I think we're slowly converging on a definition, but I'm not sure it really matters that there is a definition. I, I would say people tend to adopt each of the tools sort of one step at a time, right? Like if you're in the if you're looking for building a new website, you're not necessarily buying a DXP you're looking for a CMS and not for an email marketing solution, you know, like in a way it's more like an ecosystem. And what you have to think about is like, what ecosystem do you want to 
invest in. And maybe a very simple analogy, Jason, could be Apple, right? Like it's not likely that you're gonna buy a MacBook, an iPhone, and an iPad all at the same time. I mean, it may happen, it's just like with a DXP, right? It may happen. And we definitely see customers that buy a whole suite of everything, Acquia DXP, but more likely than not, you buy the iPhone. And then a year later, you're like, huh, I need a tablet, right? And then when it comes time to buy the tablet, you're most likely gonna buy an Apple tablet because it's gonna play nice with your iPhone or a MacBook because it's gonna integrate well, you know, all the way from iMessage to iCloud to everything in between. And it's a little bit like that. I think of a CDP is like, it's an ecosystem of tools. You, you kind of decide what you wanna be part of, but then you adopt the, the different things in there one at a time. And so like, for example, in Aquia's case, you wanna think about, you know, if you care about, open and open source and all of these things it makes sense to buy into the aquia cdp world and if you care about you know other things you know adobe's might be a better fit or you know optimizely's like each each of us have our own nuances if you yeah. will you know yeah and, and Dries, you bring up a good point there too on the the dxp side right just because the tools there doesn't mean you're having to use that tool but it is a great starting point. And what we've done and, and with a lot of the clients I've worked with, we'll start, and even before it was called DXP, I agree, it's a, a marketing label, and I'm all about marketing buzzwords and labels. I use them every day, all the time. But mm -hmm. it is really about the fact that, you know, CMSs were adding personalization capabilities prior to being called DXPs. And a lot of them were adding the tools to, to add them and build that suite. But there's also some third-party tools that might be better suited for your organization, what you need to do. So as long as the two can integrate well together to communicate for that messaging, mm -hmm. your business is best to find the right path forward with the tools that you need to deliver that correct experience within the customer's journey. And I think alongside of that, the, the big focus is really going to be you may want to start with what's in your DXP because it's there and learn as you mature in what you're delivering in that digital experience. If that solution is delivering exactly what you need, great, stick right. with it. If you right. find a point where you do need to pivot, that's usually where most of them have a great opportunity to integrate to the next maturity level of tool that you move into. So why go and start with, I always use the car analogy, right? Why, why go and start with the Ferrari when the mm -hmm. Ford Taurus is gonna be good enough and then right. You know, maybe you grow and you, you don't have to jump that far either, but when you grow out of that, you kind of move up to the Cadillac or whatever that next one may be. And so to me, that really gives you that growth as an organization with your tech stack. And I feel that the yeah. DXPs and provided and we that. We pride ourselves in that because we, we call ourselves the open DXP. You know, yeah. open is kind of what sets us apart. And that actually goes back all the way to our roots, you know, at open source. like. We want each of our products to be, we call it a landing zone or starting point. Like you can start with any of our products. It doesn't really matter, but then we want to build them in an open way so you can integrate other products into it, right? And that comes from our open source roots. Like, I don't know if you know, but Drupal itself has about 40,000 modules or integrations, you know? Like, so our whole philosophy has always been, we will fit into your stack. Like we're not trying to shove our entire suite sort of down your throat. <laughs> like maybe some of our competitors are more keen to do, right? Like we literally take the opposite approach of that. It's like, we wanna be an open platform and we will integrate and 
we will inter interoperate as well. And that way you can start small, grow into something bigger. You can start with a simple website that has zero integrations. You know, great. <laughs> you can start adding integrations one at a time. You don't have to do personalization on day one. You can do that a couple of years into your project too. That's fine. But we have the value though of going with picking a DXP. It's like, as I said, you pick an ecosystem, right? You're going to get certain integrations that are probably better. If you go with, uh, you know, Adobe's DXP, you're going to get a lot of the Adobe integrations. If you go with Acquia's, you're going to have a lot of R integrations and a lot of third-party integrations. That's a good segue into the, the next topic I wanted to ask you about, which is the ecosystems of open source in general, right? As you are aware, of course, and you've talked about this, you know, it's evolved over the years. And you've talked in other podcasts, I believe, about how, you know, the economic system behind Drupal that can stand to use some improvement. Of course, open source modules require funding. Even if it's free, somebody has to pay for the work, whether it's the developers or a company doing that. Mm -hmm. And you've also noted in a recent talk that since COVID, contributions have been on the decline. That may be temporary, of course. As you know, of course, issues are stuck in the queue a long time. Open source itself can lead to a lack of diversity because you have to have the time to do pro bono work, right? So you've made appeals to organizations to get involved and help fund contributions. Acquia itself, of course, has an acceleration team um, that does that. Of course, it helps if people have some corporate sponsors to help with that work. But you know, outside of Drupal agencies, there is a sort of a lack of diversity in the sense that it's mainly organizations that are already in, in the business of furthering the common good, such as universities, governments, and associations. So I'm wondering, you know, in terms of open source model, what your thoughts are if there is a need for perhaps a more hybrid model in the sense that, you know, in other platforms, they have paid modules, you know, or some other ways to monetize the open source um, platform. Right now, that doesn't happen in Drupal uh, or in Drupal.org. Do you see in the future that that could be part of the ecosystem? Yeah. Maybe not on Drupal.org, but is there a chance that Drupal may follow the lead of other content management systems out there that are doing that? Right. Well, a couple of things, because there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, first of all, you know, I would say that we are in a pretty healthy position. Like every year we have about 10,000 individual people contribute to Drupal and 1,200 or so organizations contribute to Drupal. So we actually have a very diverse contributor base. And, you know, to put that in perspective, Acquia is the largest contributor to Drupal. We have a, a dedicated team of I think about 30 people, that's all they do is write open source code. And Acquia represents like 3% of all of the code contribution going into Drupal. So yes, you know, I'm not saying everything is perfect, but I, I think it's actually more reliable and healthier than a lot of proprietary competitors that depend on a single organization writing all of the code. Like there's a robustness to the distributed model that we have over time that has evolved from me being the sole contributor to having right. you know all these people today. And, and two thirds of the contributors are actually paid by organizations to contribute, not necessarily full-time, right? But 
only a third of the people are sort of hobbyist contributors, if you want, that contribute in their own spare time. And that's probably a healthy mix. And we're constantly trying to push more organizations to sponsor contribution because just healthier for the individual contributors if they can get paid to do work. Plus it improves, as you said, like gender diversity, for example, because, um, you know, sadly women are often to do more domestic tasks than men still. And it makes it more difficult for them to have spare time and, and use spare time to contribute. So we see that when people get paid to contribute, there is more female contributors, as an example. So there are definitely challenges with volunteer or hobbyist contribution that we're trying to address. So anyway, so your kind of second point, I guess, is like, how do we get more paid contributors and how can we explore different business models to sustain and scale open source? I mean, that, that is a very big topic, Jason, and there are models today, like uh, art, and so I have, so we have to talk sort of legally and architecturally a little bit to discuss these, but like, because of the license that Drupal has, any PHP code has to be GPL. Therefore, any PHP code has to be open source under the terms of the GPL because the license at a high level basically is you can use Drupal, you know, for free, but if you make changes to it, you also have to make them available for free. You know, you have to give the same rights to others than have been given to you is <laughs> the basic principle. And so that means that PHP code has to be open source. So the way to monetize things or one way to monetize is to use kind of a client server architecture where the integration code can be a PHP module, but it's calling some sort of cloud service that does things. And that cloud service can be commercial offering, right? And that's how a lot of these integrations work today. Right. For example, if you have a MailChimp integration, just to name one, the module is free, but you have to pay yeah. MailChimp <laughs> to get yeah. the, the service, right? And I can give you a thousand examples like that. Search, email, I mean, you name it. It's like all of the integrations often work that way. And often that is a way to do it. I know other open source projects, they allow sort of proprietary plugins written in PHP. But my belief is that that is actually a violation of the license. Hmm. They're not actually allowed to do that. Or you could do it, but anyone that buys a license can distribute it for free. Anyway, so it gets into the in the in the details a little bit, but I think the point I wanted to make is I'm all for paid contribution. I'm all for building business models and economic systems around open source because I actually believe it's how we'll grow uh, open source. You know, if we can have more paid contributors, we're going to grow faster. It's healthy. Sometimes it's a little bit controversial to say in open source, especially sort of those that have fundamental beliefs about free software versus open source. I'm not that, you know, I'm more pragmatic. I believe in building, you know, businesses and, and sustainable organizations and paying people for their work and all of these things. Right. That's a very good answer. Thank you. Appreciate it. I do also want to ask you about Drupal's, you know, future like in DrupalCon at the last presentation you gave, you talked a lot about the goals and initiatives, the new initiatives like uh, focusing on site builders and module contributors. I think you, in fact, just said it a little while ago, the goal is for Drupal to get back to its roots. And also, I think you said before, 
you know, we're trying to shake that mindset of for developers by developers to make the system more user-friendly for the people who are using it. Drupal 8 was a bit of a departure in the sense that, well, it was a strategic decision to move to Symfony and rewrite the platform. And then, of course, there was a little bit of a drop-off in users because of that. Would you describe, it seems like a course correction going forward to get those users back? Or would you say it's Drupal is going to double down perhaps on being an enterprise level system? What would you say about those? The strategy, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think Drupal, I'm not sure it's a course correction necessarily, but um, well, you have to remember like from the day I started Drupal to today, the market has changed, right? The world has changed and so has Drupal with it. Or like as an example, like 15 years ago and somebody came to me and they wanted they said, hey, I want to build a, a website for my daughter's soccer club. I would say, yeah, you should use Drupal, <laughs> you know, because that was one of the few tools available at the time. Today, of course, you know, I probably wouldn't recommend Drupal. I mean, in fact, I would not recommend Drupal because you can go to the SaaS solutions. You can, you know, go use Wix or Squarespace, you know, unless you really care about using an open source solution, then yes, use Drupal. Because <laughs> Drupal does scale down, but it will be more work you know, to set it up and maintain compared to these SaaS solutions. At the same time, the enterprise, the high end of the market has evolved you know, to DXP platforms. And so that's a big change. And as a result, Drupal had to evolve and find its unique place in the market. And I think the unique place in the market is actually in between developer-centric solutions and sort of SaaS-based solutions, right? Like the reason people fall in love with Drupal is that they can use our low-code tools or no-code tools to quickly drag and drop and assemble a website using these 40 modules, 40,000 modules that we have, and then click it together. <laughs> and then when they need to, they because they're open source, they can just do whatever they want. You know, They can make any kind of customization because they're open source. There's no limitations as what they can do but they have a great starting point with our low-code, no-code tools, right? And so that sits perfectly in the middle of a spectrum where on the one hand of the spectrum, you have developer frameworks. Developer frameworks like Symfony, Laravel, I mean, there's a million of those. Not a million successful ones, but there's a lot of frameworks as you know, and, and those are great for developers, but guess what? They have like zero UIs typically, right? Like you can't do any dragging and dropping. You can't do any WYSIWYG. You know, site building or page building. And so that's that's not what Drupal is, right? At the, on the other end of the spectrum, the SaaS tools, well, you know, while they're very accessible for everyone, they don't usually let you customize much. And maybe there's a little bit of customization, but like doesn't have that kind of unlimited freedom that Drupal has. And so when I talk about ambitious site builders, I think it's that in between, you know, where people can do a lot through UI and they can have it hosted and, and managed like SaaS, but when they need to, they can break out of that box, you know, and they can customize whatever it is that they want because Drupal is open source. And, and to me, that's what Drupal is all about, and it, that's what Drupal has always been about. And when I talk about ambitious, you know, we say Drupal is for ambitious digital experiences. That's it, you know, like people can build anything they want. And when I said in the last Drupal Condries note, you know, Drupal is for ambitious site builders. It's not a departure 
you know, at least in my, and maybe I should have explained that better. I don't know, but like to me, we're still about ambitious digital experiences, but the way we're going to build these digital experiences is by doubling down on that ambitious side builder, you know, and that persona that wants to do a lot through UI, but that can also kind of crack open the code. Uh, it doesn't have to be one person, could be an organization, you know, where marketing can do most of it, but they need some help from maybe engineering, you know, to, to uniquely customize their experience. That I think is what Drupal is really good at. And I think that's different from where we started. You know, as I mentioned, we started as a tool by developers for developers. And I think just all of the changes in the market, I think has kind of changed where we sit and where we play. And it means that we're churning some of these low end sites, to be honest, because they're better off being managed on a Squarespace or a Wix or a Weebly or WordPress.com, right? Which is kind of simple, low-end sites, typically. That's not where we play necessarily, or not. that's not like where we have the unique advantage. Uh, there's a lot of small sites built with Drupal, but where we have the unique advantage is in like that sweet spot that I described. As you brought up market share, this is my last question. As you know, 50% of all Drupal websites are still on Drupal 7. Right. Uh, it's a, of course, Drupal 8 was a rewrite. Going from seven to eight was a big lift. Of course, once you get on that bandwagon, you know, it's much easier to go from eight to nine and nine to 10 and so forth. But I know, and you already alluded to this, Drupal.org has, what'd you say, 2 million visits a month. Drupal.org, of course, is still on Drupal 7. There's all a lot of websites out there that are really massive that may be struggling to get onto the yeah. latest versions. There's also, I think, small businesses that just don't have the budget to do a rewrite if they just did it a few years ago. What do you see as, whether it's the Drupal Association or Acquia, do you see any potential efforts? Actually, I think you have, Acquia yeah. has a, a tool for that specifically, right? Um, yeah. But do you see any particular efforts to get all these websites from Drupal 7 upgraded? Yeah, we, we're investing in that. Um, I can talk to that a little bit. As you said, like about half of all the Drupal sites are on 7. And we're currently in market is Drupal 9. Now, the important thing to realize is that we still maintain Drupal 7, you know? And so for many people, it's just reliable, battle tested. They get bug fix releases, security releases. It's not like it's an abandoned release, so to speak, that doesn't get any care, right? Like we still care and it's still supported and we just extended support by another two years earlier this year with the clear statement that we may extend it again. <laughs> so like when I talk to a lot of organizations, they don't see the need to migrate, they're happy. But then there's others that do want to migrate because obviously there is a lot of new innovation in Drupal 8 and 9 and Drupal 10, which is about to be released uh, at the end of this year. But the migration path has been hard because it was a rewrite. And so we build a lot of tools to try and automate a lot of the migration. The community build a lot of tools to try and automate a lot of the migration. And on top of that, Acquia built more tools to try and automate even more of the migration. Uh, but the fact remains that it's probably like 70% automated. And there is a last 30%, which usually involves custom code that people wrote, built, right? Like it could be custom integrations with, you know, some sort of backend system that they have, or it could be anything really. And so that requires an investment of time or money to migrate to the latest version of Drupal as well. And 
that's been holding back you know a lot of these organizations to make the step so we're trying to like for example at aqua we have a tool it's called ama it stands for aqua migrate assistant and it's specifically we worked on it we're still working on it for over a year with a, a team of engineers to try and sort of automagically migrate these sites uh, yeah. from seven to eight uh, or seven to nine now and to give them all the tools that they need, like testing environments and like we can, you know, spin up all of these environments to make it as easy as possible. And we see a lot of organizations migrate right now, but it's going to take a while because there are so many, you know, I think it's what 600,000 Drupal 7 sites that need yeah. to be migrated. And it's actually been good business for a lot of the agencies too, sadly, or, you know, luckily, I don't know what to call it, but like a lot of, Drupal companies are very busy doing these migrations. And, and when 10 comes out, and you said potentially December, yeah. will that be a good time for agencies yeah. to recommend people start migrating to Drupal 10? Or is it better to wait for that ecosystem of contrib modules yeah. to also get into Drupal 10 compatibility? Like, what would you say for right. going forward, you know, as a recommendation? Uh, what's the phrase? Uh, scan your knee, uh, be the first person to do that, or <laughs> other people. Yeah. Let me answer it. that in two parts because one thing I want to be very clear about is like starting with Drupal 8, we completely changed our release model. And we, we, we basically said we're no longer going to break backwards compatibility uh, like we did from 7 to 8, and which is why so many sites are still on 7. So we changed that completely. And now, if you're on eight, the upgrade to nine is easy. If you're on nine, the upgrade to 10 will be easy. You know, like we won't break things anymore, which is a big change from how we used to work. By the way, part of this evolution of being for developer, you know, by developers for developers to, you know, being more like an, a regular software project. Anyway, so that's important to know. Uh, and that's important to know because it helps me answer your question which is, so when we release Drupal 10, like 95% of all of the modules will just work with Drupal 10. Some of them, you may have to make some changes to your code, but these changes have been long announced and we manage them through a deprecation process. And most of the time, these changes can be made programmatically with some tools. We have tools that does convert code from Drupal 9 to Drupal 10. Sometimes some manual effort is required. Usually it's very easy because uh, it's well managed. So you should know that too. And so the way it then works, Jason, is when Drupal 10 is released, you have to check which of my modules that I'm using, because people use sometimes 100 contributed modules or something. They can check, are these modules ready for Drupal 10 or not? And we have tools for that. Like you can install a module and it will tell you, it will show you all your modules and it will do like check, 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 check cross that one is not ready <laughs> and so it, it will tell you when you can hit the upgrade button so to speak and when you can't you can either help upgrade the module or you can wait a little bit longer and that's fine too because it will support drupal 9 for you know like another year or something and so it gives the whole ecosystem time to upgrade so some organizations love being the first and others they're like yeah. oh, i'm a little bit more conservative i'm gonna wait well, thank you, Dries. It's been a privilege. I appreciate your time. Yeah, Dries. Wow. We used more than the time that we originally <laughs> allotted. 
and we could talk to you all day long, I'm sure. But we do have to come to a close for our listeners whose commutes are probably over, their workouts are done, <laughs> and they're still kind of wondering, well, if I don't look at my phone or my watch, how much time is really left in this show? But uh, very, very engaging conversation. Lots of great in-depth information, both on the Drupal side, the Acquia, the industry, honestly. And we truly appreciate the opportunity for Peter and Jason and I to just have this episode with you to really give us your insights and vision and uh, just your, your years of experience. Honestly, we thank you for the time on the show today. Overall, uh, I just want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into the future by listening to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast. For more information about the topics discussed today, check out the description of this episode. And if you want us to cover a specific topic or submit feedback, please email us at lessonsfortomorrow at americaneagle.com and let us know. Be sure to follow this podcast wherever you listen to them or video feeds on YouTube as well, where we also post to stay up to date with us. While you're at it, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating, as long as it's positive <laughs> or the real truth, that's fine. And share this podcast with others to prepare them for the future. And also, don't forget to follow us on social media where you'll find me posting through that auto-magical element of machine learning that Dries mentioned earlier. This episode is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. If you're interested in other podcasts brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios, please check out the link in the description. I'm your host, Tim Lanius, and I'll catch you in the next lesson.